Hello and welcome to this week's Ulster Rugby Roundup, your one-stop shop for everything Ulster Rugby, the Belfast Telegraph's Ulster Rugby podcast. Adam McKendry back in the hosting chair again this week, Gareth Hanna taking a week off and I'm delighted to say I'm joined to chat all things rugby by regular rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley. Hello Jonathan. Hi, how's it going? And Michael Sadler. Hello Michael. Hello there, how are you? Lots to get through today, not helped by the fact that two massive announcements came out this morning and yesterday, uh, but we'll also be looking back at Ulster's win over the Dragons at the weekend, Ireland's fortunes at Murrayfield against Scotland, and looking ahead to the Zebra and England games, respectively, this weekend. But I suppose, lads, we've got to start with the news that came out this morning, which was a massive shock to, I think, everyone. I'm not sure too many people saw this coming. CJ Stander announcing his retirement completely out of the blue in an Instagram statement saying that it was time for him to focus more on family. Mm -hmm. Guys, where did this come from? Yeah, I think just you can see by the reaction that it was quite the bombshell as the RFU were rattling through their business belatedly quite quickly, if you understand uh, my meaning. And it was just expected that CJ was going to be the next one, I think. Had been reported that CJ was going to be the next one. It's obviously not <laughs> obviously not too chatty because it turns out he's been contemplating retirement for three months now. Or had decided three months ago on retirement. But you have to respect the decision. Like we spoke about in the aftermath of the Marcel Cotia decision about Marcel looking to put his family first. And this is an even greater example of putting your family first because he's walking away from the game entirely. He wants his young daughter to grow up in South Africa and was concerned about the toll that his professional rugby career was taking on his family. So yeah, I think Ireland will miss him. Monster will certainly miss him. And he still had a few a few years to give, I think. Because I remember there was talk about him potentially going to Bordeaux earlier this season. Michael, what did you make of the news? Yeah, it came uh, pretty left field, didn't it? Uh, the Bordeaux thing, I, I think, possibly was, was something that might have been done in a previous time, uh, sort of, a, if you like, flying a kite. And it may not have necessarily been as, as, as firm as, as was suggested, um, you know, in a way of trying to negotiate a better deal. Mm-hmm. Look, it just tells you what a rainy night in Limerick does, because if you read the statement, he said just after a foul night of training with Monster, he thought, nah, I'm not going to go on with this. Having spent a period of time at home during the lockdown, an elongated period of time at home and we saw CJ putting out remember the video actually I can't remember, actually just can't remember what he was doing but you know he's doing something in a field and running and dodging various racing, animals or something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> racing, racing lives yeah it was something totally bonkers and it, it went up on social media and you know maybe that period of time those few those, those few extra months back at home made him reassess things a little bit Perhaps also uh, that was the case with Marcel, who we also saw clearly, you know, was enjoying his lifestyle out there too. And, and, and maybe, you know, that, that made them, the pair of them think, maybe for different reasons, as Marcel's going on, as we all know, or hopes to. And maybe that made them reassess. And I think there's definitely, you know, something behind probably what happened with the close down of the season, making a lot of people think carefully about, especially overseas players, about what um, they want to do. I think Stephen Ferris said this a while ago as well, that uh, don't be at all surprised if, you know, a lot of these guys now start to disappear for two reasons he made. First of all, they do want now to go home after what happened during uh, the pandemic. But secondly, the money's just not there anymore. And uh, the deals are being offered now. 
are persuading them that now perhaps is the time to move on. I don't know which it is with, with CJ, you just take him at face value. He's always been a very honest and straightforward guy. And as Johnny said, it's, it, it's going to be quite a, quite a hold to fill now. I mean, Ireland would have been hoping he stayed for another, well, what would you say, a couple of years, maybe make, you know, make it to the World Cup. But he ain't doing it now. Because even if you look at those deals and the deals that were announced came under a fair bit of scrutiny for players who were over 30 who probably weren't going or maybe weren't going to make it to the next World Cup. But I wouldn't have put CJ in that bracket because CJ would have been a player that I would have sort of been backing to be at the next World Cup as probably one of Ireland's more senior men. You mentioned Ferris there. Like I was sort of thinking about, you know, the last time that you could have said Ireland lost a would-be starter to retirement. And I think it probably probably was Ferris. Yeah. Um, but even then, because he'd had so many injuries over the past few years, like it wasn't as big a shock as this is. But just like just yeah. in general, I'm supposed to reflect on CJ and what he's what he's given to Ireland. Like he's been a wholly committed player for Ireland. He's been a very good player for Ireland over the course of 50 caps. I don't think he's always um viewed as good a player as he should be viewed. A real sort of leader as well with Ireland uh, monster. I think probably one of the characters of the team too, like in a time when there's been an awful lot of talk about Ireland and certainly the Leinster contingent being fairly quiet and um, I suppose not extrovert personalities, if you like. There was a lot of talk about that last week and from Stuart Lancaster and things that he said recently. And CJ obviously wouldn't fall <laughs> wouldn't fall into that category either. So it's like it's a hole to fill in in a lot of ways. Yeah, because it's funny. I was watching the documentary of the Lions tour in 2017. CJ is one of the most vocal guys in that, and he's always on the bench and he's always roaring the guys on. That's where where do you think this does leave Ireland? Like looking forward now, how do you fill that? standard size gap I, I think if Caelan Doris gets back to fitness and he's meant to be making a return in the next month or so personally I would think we see Doris at 8 Connors at 7 either O'Mahony at 6 or something that wasn't really spoken about before this Six Nations but the change in what we view as Ireland's strongest team is the fact that it probably now has Tigburn in it and you have to get him in somewhere and Hendy's playing so well and James Ryan's James Ryan so is it at six so is it a combination of Burn, Doris and Connors does that give you the blend that you need Coombs is somebody who's carrying would really supplement what you're losing in CJ so that like that is an interesting point like do you have enough carrying from a Burn, Connors Doris back row I don't know I think we'd have to see them play together but Omahani's obviously not out of this picture either. Michael, j- just to round off the standard chat here before we get into Ulster, where would you say he ranks in project players? Uh, I'd say he's right up there, very much. And I, I think Johnny's point about the fact you'll really, really miss him now that he's not there. Um, because I think increasingly, because he was doing all the battering ram stuff and all the carrying, you know, if he didn't necessarily make a lot of yardage in games, people would kind of go, well, you know, maybe he's not white where he was the work he got through was phenomenal and what he put his body through was uh, you know way above and beyond the call of duty i i put him right up there he his, his contribution was was huge in those successful years there coming in with uh, the back end of joe schmidt before things started to go a bit and uh, he was an absolutely phenomenal physical presence and a player who you know oppositions 
were wary and fearful of. And he gave Ireland that front foot with his, you know, dynamic carrying. Maybe that dynamic carrying isn't quite what it was. And, and maybe he's looked at it too and thought that his own powers are maybe diminishing that bit. I don't know. But he is, he will be very, very sorely missed and a super player. And as we've already said, a very, very good guy too to have around the squad. You know, if the statement is correct, and I'm sure it is that they were trying to persuade him to stay, you can fully understand why on, on every level. I think we were all curious as to how he was going to achieve the normal because never has a man mm. loved a handshake more <laughs> than CJ Stander. And now yeah. I will never know the, the real tragedy in all of this. Yeah, the crushed hand. Yeah, the things that you don't yeah. realise you'll miss. Shaking hands of every journalist in every press conference that he came into. <laughs> well, yeah. we we here at the Ulster Rugby Roundup, we pass on our best wishes to CJ for his retirement. He will still be playing for Munster in Ireland until the end of the season, but then he will be uh, heading off into the sunset. Uh, but we wish him all the best. Moving on to Ulster Matters, which is what I'm sure you're all here for given we are the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Big announcement yesterday in that we have a new arrival to the Ulster coaching staff in the form of skills coach Craig Newby. Stephen Crooks asks, tell us more about our new skills coach, so I will oblige. Former All Blacks flanker, um, he played for them three times, which Johnny said in his piece in the in the Belfast Telegraph today, which was during the era of Richie McCall, so uh, that's no mean feat to get three caps. Uh, <laughs> Then played for Leicester Tigers. He went and played in the 2009 Heineken Cup final, won two premiership titles with them. Uh, that came after he briefly uh, captained the Highlanders as well in Super Rugby. And then after his retirement, he's gone into coaching. He was forwards and defence coach in the Japan Top League for a year. He's done underage coaching with Wasps and Harlequins. Most recently, he was with the England under-20s women's as their forwards coach. And now he has joined Ulster. Johnny, I'll come to you first. What do you make of Mr. Newby's credentials and his appointment as skills coach at Ulster? Well, the thing that I find interesting about it, I suppose, is the variation of the CV. I suppose you get, cynics might look at a forward, uh, forwards coach becoming a skills coach and joke, but um, having come from a sevens background originally, made his international debut as a sevens player, won gold at the Commonwealth Games as a sevens player. I just think it's such a varied CV that you imagine that he's picked up a little bit from all these different stops. And um, I think that's what you want in a, in a coach because he can bring just a little bit of so many different rugby cultures to Ulster. And I think that would, that should be beneficial. I believe as Roddy Grant said yesterday, you know, if the guys played for the All Blacks, even if it was only for 41 minutes, um, you're doing something right, you know, you're rugby. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how he gets on because the main thing I suppose to remember is just how important a rule this has become. Like uh, I think Dan Soper joked about, uh, whenever he was asked, would he need, would he be replaced? And he sort of said, well, if I say no, then I'm saying that my role wasn't really uh, that important to begin with. But if you talk to any of the players, like it's it's become a hugely important, a hugely important part of the coaching ticket. So it's not like this. It's not an afterthought of an appointment, if if you understand what I'm saying. It'll be interesting to see how what he brings to the role and maybe what he even tweaks about the role compared to what it has become mm-hmm. since Dan Sober sort of established its 
standing in the ticket. Yeah, Michael, what do, what do you think he can bring to the role? Because as Johnny says, he's done a lot of forwards work in the past, like pretty much all of his roles so far in a coaching sense have been in the forwards. Do you think he'll be trying to continue what Dan Soper has been doing? Or do you think he's going to be trying and putting quite a bit of his own stamp on the Ulster team? Mm. Uh, well, you would think probably a bit of both, but I would have thought he would come with his own with his own stamp. I mean, Dan Sober has sort of set out a, a, a template which we've seen, and we've seen only you know the the, the side putting into to, to great effect with some of the skills they have. So I'm guessing that he's just going to continue on while bringing bits and pieces naturally of what he's brought with him into the into the role. The forwards handling is is very good. It's it's a good point. What kind of a forward skills coach necessarily do with a backline, but I'm guessing that his his involvement right across the board and various different levels will have all fed in to something that Ulster think can bring value to to what they're doing. And as we all know, uh, they want to play with a high tempo. They want to play with high skills, and therefore I'd assume that they're pretty confident that this guy's going to continue on and probably. You know, try and take them uh, to another level uh, with it. What, what do we make of the coaching staff as a whole going forward into next season? Because if you take this season's coaching staff and compare it with next year's, you've got Dwayne Peel leaving, you've got Dan Soper stepping up from skills coach into attack coach, you've got Craig Newby, who is a relatively unknown quantity at the highest level as a coach, <clears throat> and you're losing Dwayne Peel, who has been attack coach for three years now, I believe, for three or four years. Are Ulster heading into a little bit of an unknown period where they might see this either flourish or it might actually be a, a bit of a disappointment as a coaching staff? Or what do you make of it? I think, like, you know, whenever Dwayne Peeler arrived, he wasn't a particularly experienced coach. I think he'd done a wee bit of Bristol and he'd been at sale as a sort of bridging the transition between playing and coaching, I suppose. Um, whenever Dan Sober came into the skills coach role, he was inexperienced in the professional setup in the sense that he hadn't been in the professional setup. And by all accounts, he excelled at that. Dan McFarland, whenever he came in, was in his first head coaching role, having been a long, long time assistant. And... I don't think any of us would say that he hasn't exceeded expectations as a head coach. So I like I completely understand what you're saying because you look at, as everybody always does, and you compare to Leinster. And Leinster have Leo Cullen, as, who was a first-time head coach coming into the role, supplemented by Stuart Lancaster, who's coached it as a head coach at the World Cup. And even with, you know, I suppose, Philippe Condon-Pomey, who was a relatively new coach when he came in, but had such experience of Leinster rugby and there is that difference difference there but I just think Ulster have had recent success of identifying coaches that were ready to take that next step and I think that recent success means that you ha- they've bought a bit of benefit of the doubt here I think. Yes we welcome Craig to the to the Ulster backroom staff and we hope that he will be a success and um, we hope that uh, he enjoys Belfast and we look forward to welcome, welcoming him at the start of the next season. I've just moved on from that very quickly because we have some breaking news on the podcast. 
which is that Adam McBurney has been confirmed to be leaving Ulster at the end of the season. He'll be joining Edinburgh, having agreed a contract with them. Michael, what's your reaction to uh, Adam McBurney leaving Ulster? We knew he was out of contract at the end of the season. He hadn't been announced in that uh, yeah. contract. It's, it's, no, it's no surprise because of the situation. You know, we, We've now got what Rob Herring... John Andrew, oh, and both Academy boys, Tom Stewart and James McCormick. James McCormick were all going to be on the books. So there really wasn't room for a fifth. And it was pretty obvious that Adam wasn't going to, you know, fit into that scenario. So it's no surprise that Adam's going, but it, it's it's good that he's got a professional contract to go to, you know, because in, in this environment, you could just as easily be let go and have nowhere to go, if you know what I mean. Johnny, he, he is a guy who, he always had that potential. We saw it whenever he played for the Ireland under-20s and he was part of that those great teams back then, but just never really fulfilled that whenever he linked up with the, with the senior squad. Well, I think you can go back to this time last year, really, and with Rory Bettis out of the picture, Rob Herring becoming the starter, it looked like he was going to become the number two. John Andrew was relatively frustrated, I think, by his lack of opportunities. At this stage, Bradley Roberts was just playing all in a league for Rainey. But you go back to that first game out of lockdown, Adam didn't have a good game. John Andrew then really sort of establishes himself as the second choice hooker from that point, really. Recently, you've seen, you know, Bradley Roberts has been in ahead of ahead of Adam. He's lost some game time there. And sort of as you said, Adam, like we knew that he's out of contract in the same way that we know that Kyle McCall's out of contract and Alvin Matthewson's out of contract and um, Matt Fadders is out of contract. So Ulster have announced so many extensions that if you're on that list and you haven't had one announced, then you can pretty much guess what's going to happen. Like, but, but like best of luck to him over in uh, in Edinburgh, obviously. Um, we've seen a few guys go over there. Um, Roy Schools, Mikey Allen and stuff. Be interesting Assuming that those Richard Cockrell to Claremont rumours don't come to pass, I think it would be really interesting to see what Richard Cockrell does with them. Yes, we pass on our best wishes to Adam. But I'd, I do want to ask, Ulster now, their hookers, as you mentioned there, Rob Herring, John Andrew, fairly established senior players now. Tom Stewart is definitely seen as sort of the next big thing at hooker and their wide-ranging reports on how much potential he has. Uh, James McCormick is another guy coming through the academy who there are also very good reports on. Where does this leave Brad Roberts? Because we've seen him come in. He's done a very good job off the bench on a few occasions for Ulster. Do you think there's a chance that Ulster are going to seriously look at bringing him in into the squad on a permanent basis? Or is this, you know, just a one year thing and he's going to go back to club rugby whenever it starts up next season? Well, they'll need a third because Rob Herring is going to be away with Ireland. But is, so, is, that, is that going to be Tom Stewart or is that potentially going to be Brad Roberts? Sorry, that they'll need a third when Rob Herring's away. So it's okay. not it's going to be Tom Stewart because they've got... So John Andrews, their starting hooker, obviously when Rob Herring's away, then somebody has to be on the bench and they need somebody else in case one of those players gets injured, which is how we saw Brad Roberts come in in the first place when they were short of hooker during the international window with Herring away. So it's if you're going into next season say at the start of next season say that a summer tour does happen and Rob Herring goes on it you'll be starting next season with John Andrew as your starter say Tom Stewart possibly hopefully fingers crossed everybody wants to see him come through as the second choice at the start of that season 
and then it's is your third choice Bradley Roberts or is it James McCormick? And that's like that's an interesting battle, or it should be an interesting battle because I suppose in an ideal world you'd want your academy player that's already contracted to be beating a player out. But at the same time, as we've seen, you could even say as you've seen with the with this McBurney news, like the player that you expected to be there has to earn it ahead of the guy that you didn't expect to be there. I don't remember McCormick's still young. He's he's only just out of school. He's only in his first year. And while we've seen Nathan Doak make his debut at scrum half, I think as a forward, you've still got a bit of developing to do once you leave school. So I think there's a bit of patience needed there, but certainly... I think Dan has sort of established this pattern almost of like year two in your academy, in the academy does seem to be a big year. Injuries permitting, that's when you're expected to make a bit of a jump. But obviously it's going to be interesting if that can continue because this year has been so strange. Like, you know, James McCormick should have been out playing All-Ireland League all season and he's not been able to. So, you know, is, and, and not just him, but for everybody, like, is that going to slow the development of academy players throughout Ireland? Because we know they've had a few A games, but to have missed out on so, so many weeks of learning in games in the All-Ireland League is a big thing. Like we were talking to Alan O'Connor about this the other day and he was looking back at his year at Malone and just talking about how uh, invaluable that was to get him from the position of an Ulster Academy player to where he is now, bridging that gap, getting that experience. I think uh, toughening him up was something that he mentioned as well, um, which is important for forwards. So I don't think it's going to be an indictment, say, on... McCormick if he's not ready to be I suppose the fourth choice hooker next season you know we also we don't know what arrangement they have with Brad Roberts either um, we don't know mm. you know what his status is they've made no announcement about him so you would think that you know as, as Brad Roberts as far as I know is is committed to sticking around that they, they could still have him about the place but no you're absolutely right the lack of club rugby the lack perhaps of, of more regular A games would, would not help somebody like James McCormick. But I think as he is on the books, Dan will be looking for people like that to be coming through. The big question is, what are they going to do with Brad Roberts? Are they going to offer him some form of deal or is it just a paper play or is he just going to slip back to club rugby? Until we know, it's very hard to make a judgment call on what, what will happen there. So on to match action. Uh, Ulster at the Principality Stadium on Saturday picked up a bonus point win over Dragons. Lads, let's be honest, the result didn't actually matter. All that mattered really was the performance. So uh, instead of asking what do we think of the game as a whole, I'm going to ask you each for one player who did their chances of maybe getting a bit more game time, uh, a helping hand. Jonathan, we'll we'll start with you. Who do you think did did their chances the best on Saturday? Is Mike Larry kind? You can say Mike Lowry at 10. Yeah, you can, you can go for that. That's, yes, that, that, that's what I'm going to say because whenever the team was announced, we wrote in the paper that the most interesting thing about the game was going to be seeing Mike Lowry at 10 and still approved. Man of the match, I think it was 16. Was it 16 tackles or 17 tackles? On, uh, 16, I think. Yeah. Ha- half of them had seemed on Jamie Roberts. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it was all of them. He just seemed to be hunting yeah. him down by the end of the game. <laughs> one of which, uh, one of which seemed to split split his nose open. But then, um, yeah, it was uh, harking back to his uh, Leonie Nakawara tackle against Racing, wasn't it? Some of them. Um, <laughs> but I thought he managed the possession that Ulster had well. The disappointing thing for me was that Ulster didn't have a bit more, so we could see a bit more of him with uh, with the ball and controlling the back line. But when Ulster did have the ball, I thought he looked really sharp. It's interesting because I think at 15, he's been one of Ulster's best 
co fourteen <laughs> players this year. Michael, who who was a player that maybe stood out for you that might be in line for oh. some more game time? You can say Michael Lowry as well. I'm I'm not. It's unfortunate. Start it's always one of those situations when you're coming second in this. You're going, <laughs> oh no. Well, no, you can, no, you can, um, say, you can say Michael Lowry again. I'm not going to stop you from saying Michael Lowry. No, I, I'm not. I'm not going to say Michael Lowry again because uh, that would be Michael Lowry again. Full stop. Because I couldn't add anything to it. So I'm going to say actually um, again, Nick Nick Timoney, who's you know is is becoming a kind of regular selection now anyway. So it's you know he, he's going to keep playing, especially with um, the Marcel situation. Um, I know he shipped the yellow card, but I thought once again. He he was he was very very good um, and really really seems to have really stepped things up really I suppose in a way since Marcel announced that he was going to go every time we've seen Nick I think well I've certainly been impressed with him his physicality his work on both sides of the ball his his defensive work as well I think he was listed as making something like twenty tackles. So he beats Michael Lowry in that one, but then you would kind of expect that of a back rower. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, they, they did spend large periods of time defending their line, I suppose. So you're, you're throwing yourself in there. But uh, yeah, I, I think Nick uh, as well has greatly enhanced his standing uh, as, as, a, as a must start in, uh, in Dan McFarland's first choice back row. Uh, he's done that on every occasion but again he stood out for me uh, if I can't say Michael Lowry and I'm not and Nick Timoney was darn close to him and I think uh, even I think me and Johnny have been talking about it and Johnny was sort of suggesting that he thought Timoney might have got man of the match actually if he hadn't maybe shipped the yellow card he must have been quite close to it because mm. I, I think he was I think he had another really really strong uh, performance it's interesting that you say that because Niall McDonald agrees with you on Twitter. He asks, with Katsia's Ulster career potentially over, do you think Nick Timoney is the man to take the number eight jersey moving forward? And what do you think he needs to improve at to really make it his? Uh, he says, I think Timoney has been improving a lot, but also still has some room to improve. It, it is interesting that his upturn in form does seem to have coincided with the announcement that Katsia is going to leave. It does seem like he has been told you can make this number eight jersey your own. Or, or alternatively, you know, mentally, maybe that's been a release for him because, you know, how difficult is it to play behind, you know, your, your one of your world-class players? Well, your world-class player, really, in, in, in the squad. A bit like playing behind Rune Pinar. You know, you know you're not going to get in there unless there's a, a, a problem. And no matter how well you play, when you do get in there, you'll be gone the moment the marquee player is is back. So there could be an element of that. I don't really know. The short answer to that question is yes, <laughs> but he's already done it. And his game seems to have significantly improved on the physicality side of things. So if he just keeps doing that, he's got the speed, he's got the skill. So he's just, he's developing the strength and he appears to have that as well now. So um, he's more or less there, I think. I don't know if you'd agree, Johnny. Do you think he's, he's, he's a huge amount to improve on at the moment? I think the only thing that you could say is to hone in on that phrase at the moment, because at the moment, no. All he has to do is show it over a longer period of time. Because I think, as he said himself, like while this is vein of form has essentially been three months at this point, it's only been sort of six games. But you mentioned the strength, and I think that's a big thing because whenever you know, whenever I was talking to him and asking him about this, he was so focused on the change in his mental approach because he said that he'd been sort of letting selection get in his head, and then whenever he wasn't selected, it was um, affecting him, and it was sort of creating this circle. But to me, he, he looks bigger. He looks more bulked up, especially just in his upper body. 
And if you look at the two areas where I think his game is most improved over this run, it's making that extra meter on the carry. Like he's always been a good mm. carrier into contact, but I think now that he's he's carrying beyond the contact, I think we saw that for one of his tries, I can't remember who it was against, where you saw him really explode through the contact, mm. but also over the ball, because whenever mm. he gets in on the poach now, he looks a lot harder to shift. And I think that's why we've seen the upturn in penalties from him as well. Or penalties one, sorry. Yeah, and, and, and his pace his, his pace hasn't suffered either, even mm-hmm. though he's bulked up, which is, you know, another box ticked. Mm-hmm. But no, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a short-term thing at the moment. There haven't been many games. And if he can continue to do that, if we get a Rainbow Cup and he just continues on, uh, he's got to be. He he, he is. He, he's one of the first names you'd put in the team, isn't it? Yeah, it was the Isn't try it? against Connacht that he really showed that physical prowess whenever he went over the top of was it Tiernan O'Halloran to score? Um, you're right, Johnny. He was always like athletically powerful in that you knew he could carry into a tackle, but it's now, you know, carrying through the tackle, which I think he's showing. I, I think you're right. What, what else about Ulster was impressive on Saturday? I know that's a very broad question, but just when, whenever the result doesn't matter, what were we kind of looking for? What do you think Dan would have been looking for that he maybe would have been impressed with? Well, I think whenever we talked to him about it, he said that he was impressed with... The application, he was asked, what can you learn in a week like this? And he said that you learn more by seeing who's come in, who's prepared, and what that preparation that they've done for a game when the result is essentially meaningless, how how their preparation carries through into their performance. So I think if you look at any of those people that you've named that played well, I think we can read off the back of that, of what Dan said, that he thinks that's because they prepared well, and they still prepared well even off the back of the disappointment of the week before and the fact that it didn't have any tangible bearing on their season. But I also think there's something to be said for the performance of the guys that maybe didn't want to be there in an ideal world. Like whenever we were talking last week, we mentioned that I certainly would have had Jacob Stockdale back in the Ireland team. It's easy to forget, but Stuart McCluskey is in the Ireland squad for the Six Nations. Like we've not seen him even with Gary Ringrose's injury, it sort of looks like we're not going to see him throughout. So he's been in a sort of difficult position because even more so than normal with the sort of bubble that they have in Carden House and Abbotston to be shuffling between that and back to Ulster. It's a difficult time for players. We've heard lots of players say this before, but I thought Stuart McCluskey, you know, the offload for the Stuart Murray try is going to get, you know, that's the highlights. That's, the, that's what goes up on a clip on Twitter but more so just the work that he got through at the breakdown. Like we've joked before about that sort of auxiliary flanker role for him. But again, like it looked like he was in every breakdown that, that came about against what is a good Dragons back row. So that presence was required. Like Ollie Griffiths has put in two of the better performances that I've seen against Ulster this year in that Dragons back row. And that was without Ross Moriarty, who was meant to be playing. So I think if you, you know, if you're one of the, if you want to say younger players, if you want to say fringe players, but you look at that game that means nothing in the Pro 14 and was a game that, with the best well in the world, McCluskey and Stockdale would have rather been somewhere else. I think you look at the way that they prepared, the way that they performed and the influence that they had over that game and think, yeah, that's what you need to do as an international player. I suppose we we can't get away from that game without talking about that Stockdale run Michael, as Johnny says, he probably would have wanted to be in, well, sorry, he definitely would have wanted to be in Edinburgh rather than Cardiff at the weekend. But just how impressive was that run as an individual moment? And then 
do you think he's worked his way back into the equation for uh, for England on Saturday? I think there were a hell of a lot of people who didn't want to be in Cardiff who were there, to be honest with you. Never mind. <laughs> Look, it it, it it was it was a special thing. It, it's what he is now. Bear in mind, he's playing against the Dragons, who I think are probably one of the worst defenses in the in the Pro 14. But it was, it, you know, it was it was it was marvelous to see him just, you know, open up, look and identify space, find it, and, and make a run like that. It was almost liberating in a way because he said it's really quite a difficult time to see him going full pelt like that and, and setting up. Abby Matthewson score. Dan McFarland said afterwards that you know he, he wasn't perfect at 15. And yes, there were there were things that didn't quite work out. But I think the overall picture was entirely positive. He did more things than just the run, but the run was what everyone would, would be talking about. And then the timing of you know his performance in that game with what happened with James Lowe in uh, in Murrayfield all seemed to sort of mesh together. In the sense of, well, here's one guy you should really have back in, and here's one guy you shouldn't really have at all. So um, it'll be very interesting to see what Andy Farrell does, whether or not Jacob has actually really been around enough to come in, or whether he's he's just he's he's just going to miss out, you know, on the Six Nations. And the best we're going to see of him is in the Challenge Cup, and well, then we're talking Rainbow Cup. It was look, I I I just think it it was good to see him back again. It was good to see him running again again i'm not entirely convinced that 15 is the best position for him really but i suppose for a kind of a i was going to say a soft landing playing against the dragons is no bad thing but then of course it was by no means a straightforward game but you know i think it was very promising to see him be you know able to play like that again and, and be able to have the confidence to go for it We'll, we'll move on to a bit more Ireland chat in just a second. Um, but before we do that, Ulster do play Zebra this weekend. They play at Kingspan Stadium on Friday night, 8.15pm kickoff, which is just no good for us, but I suppose... No good for anyone. No good for anyone. <laughs> I, I was thinking about this the other day. That's a quarter past nine kickoff in Italy. Like, if you're a Zebra fan in Parma sitting watching that game, kickoff's at quarter past nine. Like, how is that good for anyone? The only thing that I would say is... In Italy, they obviously eat a little later. And in an ideal world, you always have your dinner before. I so, believe it. Like, even, even so. You know what I mean? This, this, the the 6.15 kickoffs, from a fan perspective, not from a journalist perspective, but from a fan perspective, 6.15 doesn't really give you time to have dinner having finished work if you finish work at half five. So you're in a bit of a rush there. So I think there would be fans that quite prefer the 8.15 kickoffs. I'm only going off the fact that Spurs in the Europa League kick off at either 6 or 8, and I prefer the 8. For that, for work, obviously, it's a different matter. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to put you in a category on your own there, Johnny. Just, I don't agree with you at all. But looking looking at this game, this is Ulster's last game before their or their Challenge Cup last 16 game against Harlequins. They've got a week off next week, and then they play Quinns. How do you think Ulster will approach this game? Because there's definitely an, a consensus that you could go full strength this week, have everyone playing again before Quinns so that everyone's as ready as they can be before that Quinns game? Or do you think they'll go rotation again and give a few guys a week off and potentially risk having some guys not match fit, but plenty rested? I think you probably see a similar level of rotation to what we saw this week. I mean, that's what I would do. The selection for last week, I think, made good sense from a team selection point of view not from the presser point of view where you're putting up players to preview games that they're not playing and that's 
bizarre, but that's another matter entirely. So to rest Marty Murr, despite his presser appearance, to rest John Cooney, to rest Jordy Murphy made sense. But I think that you also have one, I don't think you want those guys going three weeks without a game with the Dion Week and the Hardigan. So I think you probably bring, if not all of them, then some of them back. And I think you then rest some of the players that would have been in the same boat workload wise since Ulster came back after that sort of enforced break with the cancellation of the um, European games. So guys that have still played a lot over that period, but played against Dragons. So the one that jumps out is Nick Timoney because he's had a big workload of late. Al O'Connor stands out to me as someone who's played quite a lot since the break as well. Yeah, so I think maybe those guys drop out. Maybe you see Jordy come back in for Timoney. Maybe you see Izzichuku get a start in place of Al O'Connor, you know, things like that. But with the week off the next week, I don't think you rest everybody because I don't think you want those guys that missed out to not be playing for however many weeks. Like Murray came off the bench against Leinster. So that would be, <coughs> what, four, four or five weeks without a start if he wasn't to play, things like that, you know? Well, that game is quarter past eight on Friday night. As I said, you can follow it on the Belfast Telegraph website. I will be live blogging the game from Kings Fan Stadium. It'd be great to have your company. So looking forward to that one. We will quickly touch on Ireland. That that game at Murrayfield, Ireland had a 14-point lead. They blew a 14-point lead. Johnny Sexton wins it with the last with pretty much the last kick of the game. Guys, how how do we sum that one up? They won, but look, Ireland are not at the minute a convincing team. I thought it was relatively entertaining. I think I enjoyed it more than most people did. I mean, it, it, it was an I interesting I... game, but it wasn't a very high-quality game. No, well, that's exactly it. Like the France-England game the day before was not a typically Six Nations game because it was entertaining, it was high stakes, but it was certainly for the first chunk of it also very well executed, which is not which is not what we always see in the Six Nations. Like People love the Six Nations and they should because it's a great tournament, but the level of quality that we see in that England-France game is not what we're typically used to. The more typical Six Nations game is what we had on Sunday between Ireland and Scotland where there's so much action, there's so much incident, there's so much talking points. You don't know which way it's going to go. It swings one way, it swings the other. But largely by the products of team making mistakes. I do think it's one of those things that like you shouldn't blow a 14-point lead. You certainly shouldn't blow a 14-point lead through things like slipped tackles, crooked lineouts. You know, Ireland were the architect of their own downfall there. And that is... A, important moving forward and under normal circumstances I think would be as important as the result but you also can't overlook just how much Ireland needed this win Ireland hadn't won a game that we didn't massively expect them to until or since Scotland in the World Cup for my money 2019 and even that they were still relatively heavily favored this one could have went either way like I think the, I think the point spread was two I, th- I think it was either one or two it was away. You know, Ireland haven't won a proper away game, not against Italy, in a long time. It's the best result of the foul era so far. So if they had of be, you know, say they don't get the result against England, they had of lost today, or sorry, lost this week, then you're really looking at the wins that they have had over this period and saying, well, if you hadn't won those games, it would have been considered a disaster. So what are, what are you actually doing beyond treading, treading water? Michael... What, what did you make of it? Is it something similar or? Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course it was exciting. It was madcap, helter-skelter stuff. I guess you got to also bear in mind that 
Scotland managed to come back into that game as well without, remember Finn Russell went off for an HIA and the reserve scrum half ended up playing flanker. These situations should have closed it down purely and simply, but they were able to somehow mount some kind of comeback, largely due to Ireland's own folly, it has to be said. And clearly, you know, it, it two, two not particularly informed teams going hammer and tongs at each other. I think perhaps a draw might have been a fair result actually in the end because, you know, I, I just wasn't, you know, Ireland put a very structured uh, playbook together to take that lead, which we expected them to do, and then just started to slowly fray <laughs> at the edges, should we say. Uh, I think that's fair and, and, and really started to look somewhat bewildered as to what they needed to do. Uh, and it just took what it took in the end, that kickoff, that Ryan Bird charge down Handy, winning the penalty and, and, and a marvellous kick from Johnny Sexton, who we believe was cramping up at the time, which, you know, isn't perhaps all that surprising. Very, very, very fine margins. So I enjoy, I did, actually, I did enjoy the game. I did enjoy the game because you didn't actually really know what the heck was going to happen. You really, really didn't. And you want to be entertained sometimes. But, of course, a completely different form of entertainment from what had been seen with England-France, which was more like a sort of a jaw-slackening entertainment. Wow, look at that. This this is on another level. Mm. These were two teams scrambling around for form, confidence, putting together cohesive structure. And in that instant, you know, I think really the, the whole game was summed up by Finn Russell's try essentially a comedy of errors, but it still turned into a try. And also the, the, the side of Roman Poit burying himself in a ruck for Tyg Burns' try. But, you know, it's just... Which really was good because nobody else could see that grinding apart from him. <laughs> no. And you have to believe him because even though you thought maybe Hamish Watson had stopped it, I mean, who else was in a better position than Roman Poit to say, no, no, it, it actually, it actually, it, it was actually a score. I, I look... I. I obviously the next question moving on is how do we think they'll do against England? And you know, probably not terribly well if they play anything like that. And they're without James Ryan as well. So that is going to be a very, very, very tough ask for them the way if England can 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 play the way they did play against um, against France. Big ifs, I know, but you would you would fear for Ireland being able to produce what would be required to live with, with that England team. Roman Poit was the man of the match for me. Got knocked over twice, told Johnny Sexton not to be scared and buried himself in a ruck better than Nick Timoney at the weekend. And his whistle stopped working as <laughs> and well. And his whistle stopped working. My, fa- my favourite yeah. Roman Poit moment was that uh, the Leicester game at Ravenhill uh, that Ulster won 41-7. They called over Johan Miller and Jordan or, uh, Ben Youngs. And he, uh, he said to them, this is a fun game. I am really enjoying it. I think you guys are enjoying it as well. And Ben Young goes, no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, so Roman Poit will be one of my favorite referees. And Saturday or Sunday only confirmed that he will forever be one of my favorite referees. We are running out of time here, but there's two Ulster men that I do want to talk about very quickly before we move on to uh, the game against England. Ian Henderson... I thought had one of his best games in an Ireland shirt uh, on Sunday. I thought he was brilliant. And winning that penalty at the end after Ryan Baird's charge down, I thought was sort of the icing on the cake for his performance. Just how good has he been, especially whenever you consider that coming into the Six Nations, one, he had been injured, and two, his position wasn't <clears throat> wasn't even all that guaranteed because of his injury and because you had Burnham pressing and you had Baird pushing through. Uh, I'll use the phrase Lions-esque to... Uh 
describe how impressive he's been. Very appropriate in the year that it is, Johnny. It's almost as if he said that deliberately. Yeah, I think he's been, from someone that come December, you know, the start of December, looked like they might miss this tournament. I thought he was brilliant against Wales. Um, he was very good against France. A little bit quieter against Italy, despite uh, he would have had a try, if not for the aforementioned Rowan Foss being... Uh, don't you say table. anything? But don't you say anything bad against Croatia? <laughs> Clearly, well, what was yeah. <laughs> Henderson? What was quite obviously an international try, but anyway. Okay, I'll agree. And then, yeah, he was really good. But the thing I think to think about is James Ryan has went off twice in this tournament, and I think in the past people would have expected Handy to, if he was going eighty, to be blown a bit by the 80th minute, but to come back in the condition that he's come back from, from his injury to the point where he's sealing match-winning turnover penalties in the 70th minute is a massive testament to where he's at physically at the minute as well. You know, never mind the 21 tackles. To be, you know, to be able to get that far up the pitch, because we, we all know what type of an athlete Ryan Baird is. Handy's not short, but a bit longer in the stride to Ryan Baird. So to be up there on his shoulder when he's charging down that kick and... Um, making the tackle to get on, in on the turnover, I thought it was probably actually, probably wasn't talked about enough. In, in one word, Ryan, Henderson, Byrne, is that your four, five, six combo going forward? Yeah. Very succinct. Thank you. Um, Michael, you, you touched on it earlier, and I want you to be a bit more definitive now. Jacob Stockdale, oh. would you bring him back in for the England game? And if so, where would you start him? I don't know that he's ready for it myself. It's tempting, very tempting. We know Andy Farrell likes him. We know his his size as well for kick chase is very, very beneficial for Ireland as well. I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm not gonna definitively answer it. Sorry, I'm gonna say yeah. I, I'd like to see him back in the team, but I'm not sure that he's ready for it yet because I don't know that he's been around with them enough to come straight in. Uh, that would be my only concern, particularly for a game like this, which is is is, is just not going to be a soft landing, far from it. So I'm I'm going to say that though I I wouldn't object to seeing him in the team. I'm not sure it, it's a great idea for him at this at this point. Their 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 options then would probably be somebody like Conway or Larmer, who have both. Well, Conway's not been used at all, but Larmer's been in camp and in and out of the, the, the side. It very much depends what way Andy Farrell wants to approach this particular game and how much. He fears, you know, that well, fears England's physicality, which he, he ought to, and what he's what he's intending to do, you know, regarding his back three. Yeah, look, I'd, as I say, I'd, I'd like to see him back. We all would like to see him back, and we'd love to see him, you know, again excelling at this level. But I'm not so sure that he's he's quite ready for that. And uh, a long, you know, whatever it was, seventy meter, whatever it was, run in Principality Stadium against the Dragons isn't necessarily uh, you know telling you that he's ready for test rugby that's just just very quickly how do we see the england game going do you think ireland need a win from this or do you think that if they put up a good performance and still came up short then that would be okay i think if they put in a good performance they should win just being at home england are have improved since the start of the tournament but they still don't look brilliant like it's still not the england of 2019 I don't think I think it would be a massive result to get for Ireland given their recent record against England 
I understand what you mean about the performance. Like if you cut down the errors, that's a step forward no matter what the result is. And if, especially if you cut down the avoidable errors and the avoidable errors in quick succession that have really plagued out inside this tournament would be a step forward. But I just think at home, a win would be so, so important to finish this campaign on a high because it has been a disappointing campaign. Like I know they're second in the table, which you almost had to sort of um, do a double take when you saw that. Obviously the postponement of the France-Scotland games played a big role in that. But I think it would be important given that you might not have, probably won't have a summer window to progress again. And we still don't know 100% what the autumn window is going to look like. You know, you don't have that many games until you're gearing towards the next World Cup at this point. So you know, I don't think you can waste any of them. And that's why I actually I would play Stockdale, just uh, as an aside. <laughs> you just throw that in at the end and pretend you haven't just completely disagreed with Michael. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I do disagree, but <laughs> yeah. I also mentioned the fact that we're running out of time. So I was just... Yeah. yeah. Michael, just just very quickly, how do you see the game going? Or how do you think Ireland well, will look at it? Uh, well, it, you know, they might well be somewhat liberated by the fact that they got that all-important win against Scotland. But having looked at their performances across the whole of the Six Nations. I don't see them winning the game. I really don't. But then I didn't see them beating Scotland either. So let's hope I'm completely wrong about that. And probably completely wrong about Stockdale too. But I I, I don't I don't see them beating England. I think England though no far from being back at their very best are still uh, too good and too strong for them. So what we're saying is we just hope Michael's completely wrong this week. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Which is, there's a very high chance that's going to that's going to all uh, unfold. I'm only joking, <laughs> lads. That is all the time we have for Ireland play England on Saturday, quarter to five kickoff at the Aviva Stadium. Again, we will have the live blog on the Belfast Telegraph website, so we would be delighted if you would join us for that. But for now, I am afraid we are going to have to say goodbye. Thank you very much for joining us, from Michael Sadler. Bye, nice. Thank you. From Jonathan Bradley. Yes, guys. Thank you. And from myself, Adam McAndrew. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you again next week.